Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. It is a great pleasure and honor to have you with us. We have a great Farcast lined up for you this evening. We have Jim Urio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, the great Jim Urio, and thank you. You know, you always write us after Jim's been on and tell us how much you like to hear what he has to say. He's one of our most popular guests. Well, we've got him back for you this week on the Farcast. Then Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress is going to be with us again tonight. We've had so much to talk about with Dan over the past few weeks about what's going on in Washington and what's going on in China. Uh, the world is making a great difference to the U.S. economy and U.S. markets. It's important that we try to understand more. Dan is an expert. And then in the, uh, our third segment tonight, I'm going to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to explain as uh, best as I can why I believe we are in a slow growth uh, mode for the economy and are likely to stay there for a while. Finally, I'm going to talk about what sort of stocks you might own as an investor uh, uh, during this sort of a period that I see ahead of us, because I think it's going to be stubbornly with us for a number of years. Remember first that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. Finally, remember that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling fearful or ebullient, take a walk around the block, pause, don't hit the buy or sell button. Remember how you felt in December when stocks were really dropping? Were you thinking about buying? If you were, uh, congratulations. That was the right move. You have to kind of go against your emotional moment in investing. Uh, I've always said, forget everything you learned in the 70s. If it feels bad, do it. That's what you should be doing as an investor. So, Jim Muriel from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, one of CNBC's greatest, uh, also a fabulous investor, a pro's pro. Welcome back to the Farcast, Jim. Thank you for having me. Uh, you are great to do this with us. We and our and listeners just love you. But what the hell, Urio? Everybody loves you. I mean, you know, they're only human. How can they control themselves? I appreciate that. Thank you. It's 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 it, it, it's hard. Uh, all right. So, Jim, stocks have pulled back uh, beneath that 2,800, not too far, 2,791 on the S&P 500. We've seen uh, we, we've seen the bond market uh, get a little bit stronger here. I mean, we got up to about, what, 276, 277 on the 10-year, now back to 271, 272. What's going on with markets? Are we happy? Are we sideways? Explain it to us. Well, okay, since the... Christmas Eve, we were up almost 22% in that run. And, and we both talked about that. Once we bounced off those lows and clearly rejected them, we all believed, you and I both, that 2,800 was the magic level. This is an enormous actually, actually, level. Jim, actually, Jim, you called it, and I just happened to agree with yeah, you. I know that. I just like to spread I, around the credit. I don't like to I give myself too many categories. Yurio said this is the bottom. It's going to go up big. Uh, and and Bob said, oh, okay, I'll say, I'll agree with <laughs> That's that. not completely that's true, true. but I'll take that any time. Okay, so let's, after we're done giving me credit, we'll continue with this. And that's, so now we're at the, the 2800 level. Something, <laughs> something is going to happen here. My belief 
is that the most likely scenario is that we get real because th- this whole time I thought the only way we can get over that level. Remember that was an old high from from four months ago and from five right. months ago. The only way we're going to get over it was a combination of two things. Well, the main thing is a real live resolution on the China trade deal. Now we're in a spot now where we've probably rallied forty different times on different good news coming out of the talk. So it's almost to the point where I think we should be numb. Now we need a real live resolution, but now I believe there's a second part of that whole thing, and that's we also need some at least mild reassurances from the Fed that even though the China thing will be behind us, when it is behind us, that that doesn't mean they're going to pivot again and be back to a hawkish tone. As long as there's a bit of a grace period in there, I think then we can continue with markets higher. But again, this is very important right now. If we reject this level, something happens to the trade talk, or the Fed comes back in, I think we could fall back to, toward 2600. Okay, but the Fed coming back in, you mean the Fed coming back in in a little more hawkish phase. Do we really need to hear more from the Fed that they're going to be more dovish or more patient? I mean, I'm kind of taking them at their word. And, and by the way, you know, I gave a speech a couple of uh, weeks ago at the University of Delaware with uh, Fed Governor Loretta Mester. She is fabulous, by the way. She is so bright, so reasonable, so articulate, just brilliant, but, but such a nice person, too. She's, she kind of indicated... Uh, uh, you know, that perhaps it would be the summertime when they would absolutely stop uh, selling off uh, the Fed's bond portfolio. Uh, We've heard other governors sort of suggest the same thing. So it seems to me, Jim, you know, the Fed is kind of on a dovish course. Do you you have any fears that they're going to reverse? I mean, well, yeah, I, I guess I do. I'm saying because one of the reasons they were on a dovish course is they believed that tariffs were a drag on the economy. When we when they pivoted back in, I believe it was around um, November 13th, 15th area. There was, I think, there was like four different things on the docket. Number one was obviously slow global growth and some some declining numbers domestically, but also China. There was also Brexit. There was also, in a minor way, the government shutdown. Well, you know, China, I think, was number two on that list. And if that removes itself, it could make the Fed look at things a little differently. I think if they felt it was a big deal, and I did think it was a big deal, there is a chance that they'll be a little more emboldened. I don't think they're going to do it, going to switch back to hawkish right away. I think that would be suicide. Um, but I, yeah, if you ask me how I worry about it, I worry about it a little bit. Oh, well, okay. So I'm going to help you out tonight big time. This is, it's, I'm so glad you called in. This is like, you know, I feel like this is Dr. Frazier Crane. How can I help you? Uh, this is I, I'm, I'm going to help you. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, I, I really don't think you have to worry about that. Lyle Brainerd, or I think that's a surname, Lyle, Lyle Brainerd, uh, other Fed president, Jim Bullard. I mean, they're 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 all uh, cooing. Uh, they're so dovish. Um, so I don't I don't see any of that, by the way. Uh, when I when I'm talking to my guys about China and we'll hear more about this from Dan Mahaffey uh, coming right up. But when we're hearing more about China, this is going to be a multi-stage, multi-step process. I'm so glad Trump is actually doing something for the with the Chinese here. I was so glad that he walked out of those talks in Vietnam uh, to say, no, I'm not here just for a press opportunity and a photo op. I'm going to get something done. I'm going to leave. I think it sent a terrific message to the Chinese. And, you know, when, they, when we got word that there was progress being made in the China talks overnight, Sunday night, I was on with, with our buddy Sully uh, yesterday morning early uh, with Brian Sullivan mm-hmm. on Worldwide Exchange. Uh, and, and, you know, Uriel says Sully's the best. 
and uh, far no doubt, of course. Uh, but markets were up. Chinese markets were up like one and a quarter or one and a half percent on the news, Jim, that those talks were going well. And I told him, I said, Sully, look, it means that these talks are important to China, too, which also means that the pressure is getting to the Chinese markets. They've got to do something. This president's actually getting something done. I got hate mail from uh, from uh, the uh, anti-Trump folks that I said anything nice about Trump. Well, that's such a shame because I, I agree 100 percent. When when Donald Trump went down this path, this was the only economic decision that I completely disagreed with. I thought that China has so much less to lose. The Chinese officials, as far as not really having to care that much about re-election, where in this we we have to worry about election cycles here. But I was wrong. It seems like. Donald Trump showed that we have, you know, much, much more leverage in this discussion, so much so that it even swamps that notion that they don't care. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've flip-flopped on this. If we get a good resolution on this, I, I'm going to be floored. But by the way, back to the, the Fed thing again, and I, yes, I think yes. that they're dovish, too. And by the way, that saddens me a lot, too, because I know you, you mentioned something uh, before we talked about thinking that we're on a period of slow growth. I still think, even after the tax cuts and the regulatory um, reform, we do need low rates or else things could fall apart. And that, that bums me out. That, even that notion really makes me sad. Well, uh, you know, so you probably want to listen to segment three while I explain all this. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Popcorn's almost ready. I'm going to listen to it for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, how could you not? But, but you know, I, I do think, uh, Jim, that a lot of what we've done through all of this monetary easing and the creation of this remarkable amount of debt, right, we haven't really reestablished uh, organic demand. We have plenty of supply. We don't have a supply problem in the U.S. Frankly, we don't have a supply problem globally. We have a demand problem. And in the U.S., when you've got your GDP that's made up 70% of, by the consumer, and the majority of those consumers haven't seen wage gains adjusted for inflation since 1999, if the consumer doesn't have any more money, how the hell does the consumer buy more? That's, I mean, that's the point. We've got to have more demand, and, and until we keep this debt cycle going, all you're going to do is keep the supply thing going and keep it, I think, just chugging along until – the debt might wash back over us and we really go into a, a deeper recession. I hope it doesn't happen, but that's my fear. Well, this is it's funny that you mentioned, and I agree with you 100%. And I have a different um, perspective on this since we bought the restaurant outside the Chicago area, Brant's of Palatine, best hamburgers in the Chicago area. Um, that's Brant's, my plug. Wait, wait, wait. Brant's of Palatine. Brant's of Palatine in Palatine, Brant's Illinois. the best burger in the world, is it not? Yeah, it's the best burger in the world. I'll, I'll challenge any other burger place with one that's been sitting out for 24 hours at our place, <laughs> and we'll the, still what, win. What's the address of Brant's of Palatine? Uh, it's, I believe it's 807 Quinton Road, Palatine, <laughs> Illinois, but I'm not positive of that. Quinton Road. And, and remember, <laughs> listeners of the Farcast get a 10% discount for mentioning they've heard Jim Murio on the You know what? I'll go with that. I'm in such a good mood. I'll say yes to that Russian right the now. branch of Palatine. Order two yeah. burgers. They're uh, small. Oh, oh, go ahead. Okay, so the point I was about to make is that when you have a small business, I guess I never realized the regulatory burdens, the tax burdens that are squeezing you from the federal level, the state level, the county level, the municipality yes. level. Yes. And this might yes. be just... The, the awful condition of such an advanced economy that's been going on for, you know, 280 years or whatever the heck it is. And maybe that's just something that now we need low rates 
to have things chug along because it, it, it amazes and flabbergasts me the way everybody, every different government body's got their hand out trying to get something from you. Everybody's on your back. Jim, we're right at the end of our segment. Tell us, uh, tell uh, our listeners at home, my, my favorite uh, clients out there, Fred and Ethel, Fred and Ethel, who are faithful listeners to the forecast, what they can expect coming through the uh, last part of this uh, the, uh, of the quarter here for the first quarter. How do you see this playing out for the next month? And we're going to have you back on. So make sure you're right, will you? Well, I, not, not even just the next month. I think we're going to know some more things in the next couple of weeks. If we take okay. out those levels, we'll call it 28, 25 to 30, I believe the stock market's going to make new highs. I plan on increasing longs if that happens. Also, that being said, I think, you know, in the last couple of days, weeks, we've, you know, lost a lot of volatility. I think we could return too. I think there could be swings in both directions, particularly, again, I don't mean to sound wishy-washy. I think we're going higher, but as I said before, I think we're at a very, very interesting level that soon we're going to rock it off of one way or the other, and I think it's 70% chance it's higher. 70% chance it's higher. The great Jim Urio on the forecast. Listen, if you want to see him, turn on CNBC. Actually, if you want to see him in person, Brants of Palatine is the place. You got not only get to see Urio, you get the best burger in the world. Jim You're Urio, thanks for being on the forecast. Thank you, Michael. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we will have Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. We're going to talk about China. We're going to talk about Capitol Hill. We're going to talk about Donald Trump. We're going to talk about AOC. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Forecast. Would you like to hear more of Michael's forecast for the 2019 economy? This Friday in Naples, Florida, Michael is hosting a client lunch and giving a presentation. In addition to Farm Miller and Washington clients, we have a limited number of seats reserved for our loyal Farcast guests. If you are in the Naples area this Friday and would like to attend, email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmmiller.com or give me a call at 202-530-5608. I'll be happy to give you the details and get you on the guest list. Seats are limited. Now, back to Michael and the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. I am broadcasting on this Tuesday evening from Naples, Florida. This is one of my more favorite studios when I can't be with you in the Chatter studio on Wisconsin Avenue in Northwest Washington, D.C. We probably ought to go, uh, Harry, we probably ought to get Mahaffey and we ought to go out to Chicago and we ought to broadcast from Murio's restaurant. Uh, We ought to do Brant's from Palatine. I I think that's a fantastic idea that we should go out there, have Jack Berugian as uh, as a guest uh, and... uh, and uh, there's this guy named Tito that, uh, that Jim talks about a lot that uh, evidently hangs out at Brant's. Uh, he says he's a good I, guy. I've had his vodka. He's not a bad guy. <laughs> uh, he's not a I'll, bad guy. And, and Mahaffey knows where Chicago is, I believe. Yes, uh, and also Brant's is not far from the Arlington uh, pony track, so we can see whether the market outperforms the horses that day. <laughs> This is a plan. I feel a plan coming together. I need it to be a little warmer in Chicago than it is right now uh, because it's, so circa it's just June. chilly here in Naples. It's, it's down to about 72 degrees. I'm going to go get my sweater on. All right. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr and uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency 
and Congress uh, is back with us again. Welcome, Dan. Good to be back. Really good to have you. So, Dan, uh, we have had a big week. You and I were wrong. Well, certainly I was wrong last week because I thought, sure, I thought, sure, dead to rights that Donald Trump would not miss an opportunity for a grip and grin in Vietnam uh, with his uh, uh, royal largeness there. And he walked away from the table, took the plane home and said, I'm not doing it. I'm not playing ball with you. I thought it was awesome. I was so impressed with the president did that. What did you make of it? What are you seeing this week? We got to find out what's going okay. on with China then. But, but let's okay, talk so about the, Vietnam first for me. So the first bit on the, I guess on the funny side, I have to say, those of us who follow national security kind of wish that Stormy Daniels would testify every time he met with Putin. It, it would be the <laughs> best way to to get him in a in a in a little bit more of a no deal mood. But in all fairness. Let's give credit where credit is due. And the, the president knew that a, a no deal was better than a bad deal. And his team briefed him on that. They went through that. And they weren't going to uh, accept a deal where the North Koreans could get away uh, with keeping their program going for what we wanted to give them. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and the president walked. So, now, Dan, okay, so just a little inside baseball here. When the President of the United States, regardless of who's in that office, travels overseas for some sort of negotiation, uh, there is already an agreement drawn before he leaves the country, right? I mean, there's a draft agreement, but they, they can make adjustments to it. But how do they let the President make a trip like that when it's almost not entirely done before he gets there? Well, the problem here is that this is a White House that entirely revolves around the president's concept of his deal-making abilities and the idea that uh, the North Korean nuclear program is just something at the corner of, of Fifth Avenue and 23rd that two people can get together and make a deal about once they're in the room together. So the conventional model would be to have all the lower-level officials negotiate the deal, go through the dribs and drabs, the back and forth, and then finally get to a point where the leaders, you know, these are the, this is the 10 or 15% that leaders uh, have to handle themselves. And then at that point, they go in and make the deal. Okay. So uh, this is, so you're saying something that's kind of encouraging because Dan, I really thought, so I, as I was thinking about this, the normal way that uh, this sort of diplomacy is conducted is that all of the details are pretty much hammered out. Our folks are pretty sure that the president's going you know, to sit down with Kim Jong-un and uh, get to the point where they you know, sign something and have their moment in the sun again, all huggy, kissy face. But so when it didn't happen, I thought, well, no, wait, they didn't have, they didn't have this done. The president went over, and it was much more of a stage moment for him to walk out. I mean, I, I'm so cynical that I thought that they probably went ahead and planned the walkout. He probably had dinner in D.C. scheduled before he even left, knowing that he wouldn't be there for the press conference. You're suggesting that's not it. You're suggesting that the uh, that the president, this particular president, is so confident of his deal-making ability that he went over there and really thought he would get it done uh, by the seat of his pants? Well, I think not even the, the seat of his pants, but look, they had they had their side, and, and 
the way he talked up the idea that North Korea could be the next uh, next Singapore, the next Vietnam, the next uh, Trump beach property, Yellow Sea, they, they kind of played up all those different avenues, thinking that it would get uh, Kim Jong-un to want to move past their current program. But at the same time, there's we've now learned, look, you send lower-level officials, you send former officials, you send the president of the United States, and now we just need to understand that North Korea is such a, a savage version of bizarro world. There's not a way that you you move in a traditional deal-making sense with a with a totalitarian Stalinist regime that identifies their nuclear program with their regime's survival. Okay, so uh, a savage version of bizarro world over in North Korea. Let's shift to China now, because we keep getting these encouraging sound bites that we're close to something. And actually, we've gotten some of those encouraging sound bites from Larry Kudlow, uh, and we haven't really had them confirmed by Bob Lighthizer, uh, who is the U.S. trade representative. Bob Lighthizer, an old friend of mine. And, you know, when Bob Lighthizer finally looks up and says, we've got a good deal, I'll take it to the bank. I trust Lighthizer. And he doesn't spin well. Lighthizer is great at mm-hmm. a lot of things. Spin is not one of them. What's going on with China, Dan? Well, I think Lighthizer can't really tip his hand since he's the one actually playing poker. Um, you've got to go and look at what the Chinese are doing. And look, I think we're going to get some stuff that moves purchases, energy purchases, agriculture purchases. Uh, but we don't want to be the next uh, jewel in the Chinese mercantilist crown. So let's look at enforcement. Let's look at how the new intellectual property rules actually get promulgated by the People's Congress. And what we need to make sure is, and if you look at the recent survey from the uh, the American Chamber of Business in China, it's that the Chinese actually might agree to some measures that actually are enforcement. But the question is, do they do them in a way where you can draw out the legal proceedings so that by the time you get a ruling, you've moved to the next product cycle, you've moved to the next technology? Because that's what we've seen. We've seen it with the credit card companies. We've seen it with the financial industry, where they're going to look at this like, let's just put in as many measures and legal barriers as possible so that if enforcement does happen, we draw it out as long as possible and the Chinese get what they want anyway. So, Dan, we are we are going back and forth in this confrontation with Chinese. I was on CNBC yesterday morning. And I saw the Chinese market on these rumors that uh, there was progress being made in these trade talks. Chinese markets um, were up uh, one and a quarter percent uh, based on these good news rumors. It seems that the Chinese markets are also looking for some sort of success in these trade talks, which tells me that they're feeling pressure from the, uh, some of the uh, tariffs and certainly the threat of additional tariffs. Is that right? Do you think we're right about that? Or are they just playing with us? I mean, are we just a ball of yarn and they're a very large cat? Well, I think there's a little bit of both of that. And to do Chinese stock market, a little bit of both. And to do Chinese stock market psychology would require a whole episode because you've got, you know, elderly pensioners (laughs) who are looking for something to do with their money all day. You, You see 
uh, elderly Chinese in the brokerage houses, like they're at an OTB, uh, doing something with their money for the day. So I have, have seen to, that, yes. You have to balance that with, okay, where is the market sentiment moving? And certainly China is at a transition point where tariffs and trade pressure would affect them. Uh, but I don't think we should overplay it, considering how, if you look at the data and the studies now, when the Chinese are killing tariffs, they're just passing it on to the American consumer. They used to take it. They used to, uh, you know, cover that cost on their end. Now they know they can just pass it on to the foreign consumer, so it doesn't have that same leverage. Well, but it does, I think, Dan. I mean, at a certain point, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me to disagree with you, but, and I'm not sure we are, but to clarify, uh, if the Chinese are making flat-screen TVs, uh, and they want to pass those tariffs along to the American people. The, tar- the American people can say, wait a minute, I'm going to buy the Korean TV for 400 bucks. I'm not going to pay 800 bucks for the Chinese TV with including the tariff. And the Chinese are going to have a warehouse full of flat screen TVs or name of product here. Sooner or later, their lack of sales, given the lack of competitiveness in price, has to have an effect, doesn't it? Or am I missing something? At, at a certain point, but we, we are now so globalized that uh, Econ 101 gets tricky because that Korean flat panel television is probably broken down into microchips from the U.S., Korean circuit boards, and still like a, a Chinese-manufactured panel at some point. So the, the system is so complex that the actual cost can be obfuscated and either pushed on to the the, the next tier manufacturer or ultimately the American consumer. Slows them down, though? It slows them down a bit, but I think there's other structural issues, the environment, an aging population, uh, other pressure points that actually probably keep Chinese leadership uh, awake at night compared to what's going on in the White House. We've got two minutes left here. Tell us what you think happens over the next three weeks in this trade negotiation with China, and then tell us what you're watching in Washington, D.C., and now I've got two, hour, two minutes. Uh, I'm probably less than two minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, you, two minutes, uh, what takes two days to explain. Um, yeah, we've that's got... why we have you. <laughs> okay, I think, look, we get a deal with the Chinese. We, we calm things down a bit. We have an enforcement mechanism that's somewhat vague about whether we could put tariffs in, and, and perhaps at some point we snap back to tariffs and you know, tariffs might be a big thing in 2020 when it's an election year, and th- that might be a way to get tough on an external opponent for uh, for President Trump in an election year. So I wouldn't pull those off the table entirely. Uh, in Washington, I think it's interesting to see now we're actually getting the scope of Democratic oversight. We've seen the, the broad swath of subpoenas coming uh, from the Democrats. And when we talked about this back before the midterms, I said the Democrats could do two ways. They could do impeachment, which is kind of like, a, you know, World War One digging in uh, or it's a guerrilla warfare where it's the investigations. I think they're learning right now in the early stages. They can do both. Let's keep them tied down in investigations. And perhaps we'll have uh, through these investigations the smoking gun that allows for a bipartisan impeachment process. Okay, so you you think that Washington and, and, and the Democrats are going to continue to subpoena and basically drive the president crazy without actually uh, giving 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 him the hard target against which he can campaign of actually impeaching him? 
Exactly. And because I think they understand that you, they compare the Nixon impeachment to the Clinton impeachment. You know, the Nixon impeachment, by the time everything uh, rolled along, it, it was clear that both Republicans and Democrats were ready to uh, push for impeachment. By the time we got through the Clinton impeachment, it was so partisan that the American public was suddenly, you know, perfectly OK with their the American president acting like a French politician because they saw just how partisan the Republicans were in, in pushing for impeachment against Clinton. So they want to get right. it so that the, the facts are in favor of some Republicans moving over to make it a bipartisan process by uncovering what's gone on through investigation. So the biggest thing you're watching right now is, is, this, is, is that going to be the subpoenas that they're sending to Trump? Is, Trump, is that the biggest thing in D.C. you're watching? I see that Michael Bloomberg is not going to run for president. He announced that this evening. I saw this morning that Hillary Clinton says she's not going to run for president uh, this time around. She's going to work hard for the Democrats. Anything else you're watching here uh, in D.C.? I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really, other than, than logging who is coming into the, the Democratic primary, I want to start to see it settle out and see who starts to be the front runner in a, in a left lane and a center left lane before we really start to, to spill more ink and uh, airtime on that. Has Joe Biden announced yet? I think the fact that Bloomberg has bowed out tells me that a Biden announcement is pretty imminent. A Biden announcement is imminent based on Bloomberg's bowing out, says Dan Mahaffey. That makes a great deal of sense, Dan Mahaffey. It's why we have you on. You've got the greatest insights, great access to information, a pro's pro from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, uh, the senior political analyst for the forecast, Dan Mahaffey. Thanks for being with us again, Dan. Good to be back. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to be right back as I explain why we're having slow growth for a long time or a little bit of a lackluster growth environment and supply side really isn't working. When we come back on the forecast, I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Forecast. Thanks for listening to The Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, associate producer for the show. We love bringing you the show every week and appreciate your listening. We'd like to introduce you to our daily show as well, The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Each morning that U.S. markets are open, we bring you headlines, markets, commodities, and futures, all in the time it takes to brew a cup of coffee. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or your favorite podcast platform and get the market facts as the sun rises. And now, back to Michael Farr and Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. What fabulous music. I just love it. It just keeps my toes tapping. Ladies and gentlemen, you're wonderful to be with us, and thank you for having us every week in your offices and homes uh, on the treadmill, in your earbuds and in your cars. It is a great privilege. And thank you for the notes that you send us. You know, uh, H. Jennings at farmiller.com, H. Jennings at farmiller.com, and Harry reads all of these things and sends them on to me. Uh, even the nasty ones, I read them all, and we try not to offend our, our, favorite, our favorite listeners. We really don't. Uh, okay, segment three. As we look at... Uh, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. I want to talk a little bit about why I think this slow growth environment's with us for quite a while and why I think we've reached the limits of the efficacy of supply-side supply side solution 
to the uh, financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Uh, 2008 and 2009 was a financial crisis created by leverage. And we had enormous leverage at the banks, if you'll hearken back to those days of yore with me, to 2006 and 2007. In the uh, consumer market, there were these things called no-doc loans. And consumers could go out and we were encouraged to borrow money, to flip houses, and you didn't need docs. And I was talking to people, uh, folks, carpenters, construction workers, who were telling me that they would take the third, they had just signed up and bought their third spec house on a third mortgage uh, with papers that they'd signed. And if they couldn't afford the payment, they'd just sell the house and they would make money on that house uh, because the market was going up and just rip-roaring. Ladies and gentlemen, markets rip-roar when there is a ton of buying. When there is a ton of buying, prices go up. When the Federal Reserve Chairman, and Alan Greenspan did this, said, go out and borrow money and there's no real housing crisis, and they lowered interest rates to below 2% for three years in a row in the mid-2000s, and you could get a no-doc loan, everybody went out and did it. And they bought a ton of houses, and housing prices rocked. Even people with bad credit got these things. So you have these prime loans, which are for people with very good credit, and you can get prime rate. You've heard of the prime rate, I know, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, prime rates for the best credit customers of the bank. Well, if you're not that good a customer of the bank, we could do these things called subprime. And subprime built and built and built, and it created part of the bubble. The other part of the bubble was created by the investment banks. Investment banks like Goldman Sachs, like Bear Stearns, like Lehman Brothers, would leverage their balance sheets 35 to 1, ladies and gentlemen. Now think about that. Think if you had a million dollars. Let's say you have saved a million dollars, and you're going to be able to borrow in one quarter and leverage that 35 times to $35 million. That's what the banks were doing. They had a million, and they'd leverage it 35 times. Now, let's say you make 10% on your 35 million. Well, congratulations, you just made three and a half million. How much money did you really have in the game? A million bucks. You had a million bucks in, you leveraged it 35 times, you made three and a half million dollars. Why wouldn't everybody do that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, pretty much every bank that figured out that they could did. They did that. Now, Let's think about the flip side of that. Let's say you borrow your $35 million, you have your million, and you borrow your $35 million, and it goes down 10%. You're now down $3.5 million or $2.5 million net. And you say, drats, lost all of my tiddlywinks, time for me to leave. And you walk out of the room. Somebody is still out $2.5 million net. And that was the problem. And actually, it began to rear its ugly head in the short-term overnight markets. The banks trade back and forth between and among each other overnight to make sure that they've got their liquidity requirements so that they meet their federal regulatory and depository standards. But one bank finally looked up. Now, this is a far uh, theory of mine. Uh, this is far theory, but one bank looked up as they were doing these overnight repurchase agreements, 
And they looked, some one of those geniuses at one of those investment banks said, you know, we just sent Lehman Brothers a whole load of crap paper. It was just junk paper, and they financed it overnight. And aren't we smart? And then it took them about four or five minutes to sit there and go, oh, my God, I hope that they're not sending us the same kind of crap back. (laughs) And then when they kind of started to look at it, they realized, indeed, they were, and everybody stopped. And overnight liquidity stopped, and that started that financial crisis, and it unwound and unwound, and it went down a very deep rabbit hole. So what did the Federal Reserve do and what did the government do? We had a lot of emergency meetings. We saw the debt of those banks start to trade at 60 cents on the dollar. It was a very dangerous time in the U.S. economy. I was on CNBC two and three times a day because I'm the only practicing money manager in Washington, D.C., who's a paid contributor for CNBC. So anytime anything big's happening on Capitol Hill, I got a black car outside of my office to take me down to a camera. It was really, really stressful for clients, uh, for us, for everybody. But the government said, wait a minute, we're getting ready to go into the Great Depression again. This is going to make 1929 look easy. We've got to do something. And indeed, they did. Uh, Ben Bernanke uh, did a lot. He went over to the Treasury building. He met with his friend Hank Paulson, and they went down together to Capitol Hill. They met with Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and the whole gang in a bicameral, bipartisan, big meeting. And they said, look, folks, we are in trouble. We are in trouble with a capital T that rhymes with B, which stands for bankruptcy. (laughs) And that's what we had. Uh, That was the threat. So they threw a lot of money at it. They came up with quantitative easing. They came up with TARP. They came up with all of these things. And they created a lot of leverage, and they averted the crisis. God love them and keep them. These government uh, dedicated uh, service uh, folks who are working uh, for all of us actually saved us from a pretty good depression. And I don't mean severe recession. We had a severe recession. I mean depression. It was going to be really, really awful. So they threw a lot of money at it. Now think about this for one second if you're following me here. I've told you that we got into trouble that was created by a whole lot of debt. So what was government's solution to that? Let's have some more debt. Hey, there's an idea. So indeed, that's what they did. They created a lot more debt. And when that seemed to solve the immediate crisis, we needed then to have some growth. How do we do that? A little more cash. And so the government continued to spend more than it brought in. And our friends at the Federal Reserve created this huge balance sheet, almost out of thin air, and took it up to well over $4 trillion. I'm going to do a little more math from you, for you, and with you here, because I'm sure you're doing it in your heads, too. During this period, between 2008 or 9 and now 2019, let's say that the average U.S. gross domestic product, GDP, was around $16 trillion or so, something like that, maybe $17 trillion, but probably closer to $16. We're now up just over $20 trillion. $16 $16 trillion, $17 trillion. So the Federal Reserve shoved $4 trillion into that market. At the same time, and over the last 10 years, we've seen the U.S. debt increase by another $10 trillion. So you took $14 trillion, you shoved it into a $16 or $17 trillion economy, and you got ding, 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 
2% to 2.5% GDP growth. Ladies and gentlemen, even my friends Fred and Ethel, who are my faithful listeners, know that $14.5 trillion is a lot of money for a very little bang. A lot of bucks, little bang. We keep continuing to add to the debt. In fact, the United States government is now spending $80 billion more each month than they bring in in receipts. $80 billion a month more than they bring in in receipts. How do they do that, you might ask? Well, that's a damn good question. They borrow it. They're creating more debt every day. Last year, we had a surge in uh, in growth in the U.S., and it was really encouraging. You've heard about it. We got up to 4% or slightly above 4% GDP growth. How'd they do that? They had a big corporate tax cut. They had a big spending bill. They had this big, huge spending ha-ha in Washington, and they said, we're going to bring in fewer receipts. And uh, basically, the economy expanded. But now we're right back to trend. We're going right back to that two, two and a quarter percent GDP growth going forward because those two stimulus packages were episodic. They didn't have any. They don't have legs. They don't have a long life in front of them. You know, you shove the money in, the bell rings, and then they want more money. Well, we got the we got the bell ringing. The bell was rung, I guess. We did see that four percent, but now we're back to that two percent growth. But but don't forget. We added another trillion dollars to the debt in order to make the bell ring, and we've still got to pay the interest on that debt, and the debt is continuing to grow. So we have been able to supply things in the U.S. We can continue to produce in the U.S. What we haven't been able to do in the United States, in our economy, is create demand. So even though uh, our, the great you know, far uh, donut shop because I've always wanted to have a donut shop. I really have. I've always liked donuts. I've been a big fan of donuts. I can make more donuts. I really can. I can hire another person. I can buy another machine. I can crank out more donuts. What we can't do in the United States is find anybody else to buy the damn donuts. We need the demand. We don't have a supply problem. We've created a lot of debt and a lot of cash to keep this market alive. It's basically worked very nicely. It's alive. It's, it's, it's just kind of plodding along at this 2%. How do you get past 2%? Very hard to get past 2% until you have demand. How do you get demand? You need a healthy consumer. 70% of U.S. GDP is the consumer. We're beginning to see wage gains. This is why I've long said on the forecast we need to see wage gains in the U.S. It's a good thing. It's going to be a healthy thing. So... When you hear these unemployment reports or employment numbers, when you hear GDP numbers, when you hear the CPI report, I want you to listen for one thing. I want you to listen for wage gains. When you hear that we've got some wage gains, don't be alarmed. Yes, it's going to eat into earnings a little bit, but it is going to be the fuel that strengthens the next economic expansion, and it better happen before the debt surges back on us and begins to suffocate us of its own weight. So it's not awful, as I've been writing to you lately, okay is okay. We do have a path forward. It's not all that bleak. I am worried about the debt, but the solution that we've taken to the last crisis will not take us to that next new dawn, that next phase of economic growth. 
in order to have economic growth in the United States, we have to have a healthy consumer who is able and willing to consume, and they are limited now because they haven't seen wage growth since 1999. Watch that consumer, and you'll know all you need to know about the economy. Right now, the uh, U.S. economy is growing. I think we're going to see earnings growth probably over the next few years of 5%. You get a 2% dividend on that. We got a 7% return. I'll take it all day long. Thanks for being with me. I hope this helped a little bit, made a little bit more sense. I'm going to be back with you next Tuesday night. I can't wait to be back with you. We have great guests for you next Tuesday night, another great forecast. Thanks so much for being with us. I have a very grateful heart from Naples, Florida. Thanks so much. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We enjoy making the show for you every week. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard specific investment advice to buy or sell any security, you haven't. The Farcast is for informational purposes, and, well, we hope you enjoy listening it as much as we enjoy making it. Please consult with a financial professional before you're making any investment decision. If we can be of help at Farm Miller in Washington, please give us a call.